The president has instructed the State Department and other agencies to ignore congressional subpoenas for documents. He has instructed witnesses to defy subpoenas and refuse to appear. These actions will force Congress to consider, as it did with President Nixon, whether Trump's obstruction of the constitutional duties of Congress constitute additional grounds for impeachment. I'm Ezra Klein, and this is Impeachment Explained. Hello, I am Sean Illing, Vox's interviews writer, sitting in for Ezra this week. This week kicked off the public phase of the impeachment inquiry. We heard the testimonies of State Department officials Bill Taylor and George Kent. And on Friday, the testimony of former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. These hearings were long and full of information, but they were important nonetheless. So I'm joined today by my colleague, Andrew Prokop, who has been following these hearings more closely than anyone and who can help us understand what happened this week and what insights it gives us into how this investigation will proceed going forward. Andrew Prokop, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Did we learn anything new from the public hearings this week? What are the biggest, most significant takeaways? For the most part, the witness testimony at these public hearings was um, a repetition of what they had already said behind closed doors. But there were a few exceptions here. During Wednesday's hearing, Bill Taylor, the top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, revealed that he had gotten new information just last week. Uh, He said that a member of his staff told him about another phone call that Trump was involved in with uh, the ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden which Giuliani was pressing for. You know, the big picture on that is that it's just another piece of evidence of how personally involved Trump was in this whole thing. And they have reached out to that staff member and uh, are taking a deposition to hear more about what Trump was uh, instructing Ambassador Sondland to do. I think the other big unexpected piece of new news is that when Marie Yovanovitch, the former ambassador to Ukraine, was testifying on Friday. Trump decided to tweet in the middle of the hearing an attack on her. As we sit here testifying, the president is attacking you on Twitter. Everywhere Marie Yovanovitch went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Later in the tweet, is a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors. So she was asked live for her reaction to that during the hearing. And um, Democrats immediately suggested that uh, this could be attempted witness intimidation from the part of the president. What do you think the Democrats were trying to accomplish with these public hearings? And I guess, secondly, do you think they actually accomplished it? Were they successful at whatever they were trying to do this week? So they viewed the um, initial stage of the impeachment inquiry, these closed-door depositions that took place over October, as a fact-gathering phase. And now they were trying to make more of a 
public case. Um, they thought that they didn't expect to reveal a ton of new stuff dramatically during this hearing, but they figured that a lot of Americans hadn't been paying much attention yet. Um, people aren't reading these hundreds of pages of transcripts, so why not put on um, big spectacle TV events? And, you know, we'll have to just wait and see you know, polling and so forth to get a sense of whether it's had any impact on public opinion. My prior is just to be naturally skeptical that any information could um, dramatically change public opinion on Trump at this point, given just how polarized and how entrenched uh, voters' views of him are. So the Democrats thought the best way to conduct an exercise in public education would be to stage a TV drama? Yeah, but I mean, I don't want to be a theater critic here, but um, they treated it with seriousness. They they shook up the usual format of their public hearings, which have been a bit of a mess throughout the year. And, and so they allowed for longer 45-minute blocks where um, mostly their staff attorney would question the witness and would go through various timelines of events, various um, implications of wrongdoing and so forth. And so the goal of all this was to put stuff out in public and to get it in front of more people and hopefully to change some minds. And, you know, we'll see whether that happens. I want to ask you about the Republican side of this. I think for anyone watching, it was pretty clear that the Republicans were not really there to defend or even consider the actual charges. They were primarily floating conspiracy theories, making, I think, patently bad faith claims and generally attacking the process. What was the actual strategy on their side? And do you think they were successful? I think they were just throwing everything they could at the wall, all sorts of different things to try to just see if anything would stick. Um, whether it was conspiracy theories, whether it was, you know, attempts to change the subject, whether it was process complaints, whether it was attacks on Adam Schiff, you know, it, it's all proceeding backward from the assumption that they see their purpose and their role at this hearing as defending President Trump. And they didn't seem to particularly care. Like, you know, they can switch back and forth within a breath from arguing that either that Democrats haven't presented enough evidence to prove that Trump actually did anything wrong to arguing that, well, even if this was proven, it wouldn't really be a big deal anyway. Who cares? Even if Trump did it, who cares? Did anything stick? I mean, did you think that they successfully defended Trump, whatever that means uh, from their point of view? Well, I think the goal for the Republicans at this point was mainly to maintain their own unity, because as long as Trump keeps the Republican Party and Republican base voters behind him, he's going to survive this thing. The GOP controls the Senate, and it doesn't just take a majority to remove an impeached president from office. It takes a supermajority of 67 votes. That's 20 Republican senators. So really, you know, Obviously, Trump would probably prefer not to be impeached at all, but it looks like that's going to happen at this point. And the actual big deal is will he be removed from office or whether, as it certainly looks right now, the GOP will stand, continue to stand mostly behind him and he'll survive. So 
Democrats are laying out the facts of the scandal, which I certainly agree look quite bad for him. But when it comes to Donald Trump's political future, I think every day that the Republican support for him is continuing to hold strong and not collapsing is another sort of sign that he is going to remain in office at the end of all this until that changes. One of the things we heard this week from almost all of the Republicans is that there couldn't be any quid pro quo. There couldn't be any extortion here because in the end, Ukraine got the foreign aid anyway. Is is that a good argument? So this is one of the mysteries that the Democrats still haven't really managed to nail down the facts of what happened. So the aid was being held up since July 18th. And then on September 11th, it was suddenly allowed to go through. There were a number of things that happened in the days before September 11th. Um, Adam Schiff uh, just got a letter from the inspector general for the intelligence community saying that there was a whistleblower complaint that was being withheld from Congress. That is, of course, the Ukraine whistleblower complaint at the heart of this scandal. Schiff also announced publicly he was starting an investigation into Rudy Giuliani's influence on Ukraine policy. Uh, John Bolton, the national security advisor, who was apparently really against withholding the aid from Ukraine, suddenly left the White House on bad terms. And then there's also Bill Taylor, one of the witnesses from this week, had expressed his concerns about all these policies in writing. So all of that taken together, it, it looks circumstantially a whole lot like the White House agreed to let the aid go through, perhaps because the heat was on, because there was an increasing risk that what they were doing was going to spill out into the public, that their attempts to withhold the aid from Ukraine would soon become the focus of a major scandal. And and so they suddenly changed their minds and backed off. But, you know, we still, in my view, don't really have the witnesses and uh, documents necessary to really prove what happened with why the aid was let through so quickly. Well, the other big argument is that, well, the testimony that we were hearing was second and third or fourth hand. In other words, none of these people were in the room. They had no direct knowledge of anything that may or may not have happened. Uh, Is that a a credible uh, argument against what they actually had to say? Well, it's true that Taylor and George Kent, State Department official, and Yovanovitch, none of them had any direct contact with Trump involving the events at the heart of this scandal. But the problem is that the people who have had direct contact with Trump here, um, the White House isn't letting them testify or they are telling them not to testify and they're respecting the White House's wishes. These are people such as John Bolton, the former national security advisor, Mike Pompeo, secretary of state, Mick Mulvaney, acting chief of staff, who was involved in holding up the military aid to Ukraine. And it's a little telling because the Republicans on the committee keep saying, oh, well, you don't have any firsthand information. And then the witnesses who actually do have firsthand information, uh, they don't want them to show up and testify under oath. I think the the one exception so far has been Ambassador Gordon Sondland, who did have a lot of personal contact with Trump over all this. And he has already been running into some trouble. He 
gave his testimony, and he had some noted failures of recollection. He kept saying he couldn't remember doing this or that. And um, testimony from subsequent witnesses already forced Sondland and his lawyer to submit an addendum saying that, oh, no, now he remembers, in fact, telling the Ukrainians that they probably wouldn't get their military aid unless they did the investigations Trump wanted. So, you know, Sondland is the only person here who has been on the witness list who has had a lot of, you know, personal consultations with Trump. He is already facing serious doubts about the honesty of his testimony and all the other people who are talking to Trump haven't shown up at all. Andrew Prokop, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. One of the Republican arguments that has emerged in the last week or so is that everything that the testifying witnesses have said so far is hearsay because it comes second or third hand. Of course, in a legal sense, that argument is completely ridiculous. We use second and third hand evidence all the time. But it is worth asking the question, why haven't we heard much from those closest to Trump? Well, the answer is simple. Trump announced early on that he and his administration would refuse to cooperate with the impeachment inquiry. This inquiry has uncovered quite a bit so far, which makes it easy to forget that the intelligence committee has been conducting this investigation with effectively one hand tied behind its back. And that is largely because of the Trump administration's actions or lack thereof. We talked a lot about the abuse of power, corruption, even bribery so far in this investigation. But something we've talked about a lot less is obstruction of justice. And this week, that term got a whole lot more relevant. That's why I wanted to talk today with Brianne Garad, the chief counsel for the Constitutional Accountability Center. There aren't many people who are quite as clear and thorough at explaining obstruction of justice as Brianne. I learned a ton from this interview, and I think you will too. I speak to Brianne next. Brianne Garad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I think the best way to start is to just have you lay out a crisp, clear definition of obstruction of justice so that everyone knows what we mean. Sure. And I think it's actually important to make clear that obstruction of justice can mean a couple of different things. So obstruction of justice can refer to provisions of federal law that make it a crime, a criminal offense to obstruct justice, essentially to corruptly influence or obstruct or impede or endeavor to uh, influence or obstruct or impede a pending or official proceeding. So that can be a court proceeding. It can be a congressional investigation. And for purposes of the criminal law, there are a number of questions that you have to ask. You know, one, um, was there an official pending or pending proceeding? Two, was there an attempt to obstruct it? And three, did the person act with a corrupt or improper state of mind? That's the criminal law. Totally separate and apart from that, there is obstruction of justice as an impeachable offense. So in the Constitution, you know, the framers use the language high crimes and misdemeanors, and this can be a little confusing because they use that word crime, but they're not referring to provisions of the U.S. Criminal Code. The U.S. Criminal Code didn't even exist when they put that language in the Constitution. What they were talking about there were abuses of the public trust. Officials, including the president, using their official powers in an effort to benefit themselves rather than the nation. And so it's important to keep those two things separate because there can be obstruction of justice that is impeachable and warrants an official's removal from office, totally apart from the question of whether the criminal law has been violated. Yeah, and we're definitely going to 
pivot to this in the context of impeachment. But I think first, it's important to really just set up the conceptual table here so that everyone knows what the term obstruction of justice means uh, as a legal term. And so just for clarity, what does the word justice actually refer to in the phrase obstruction of justice? What is the thing being obstructed? Is it an investigation? Is it a criminal proceeding? All the above? What? Yeah, it can be a bunch of different things. So it can include a court proceeding. It can include a, a congressional investigation. And importantly, it doesn't even have to be an, a proceeding that exists at the moment. It can be an attempt to uh, impede or obstruct an investigation or a proceeding that might occur in the future. And are certain proceedings or investigations more vigorously protected from obstruction, or are the same standards applied more or less equally across the board? Yeah, there are a few different provisions of the federal law that make it a crime to obstruct different proceedings, but the thrust of all of these provisions is the same. Um, It recognizes that it is important to the integrity of our justice system that it be able to operate without individuals trying to prevent the finders of fact or those who are doing investigating from getting to the truth of the matter. And what are the sorts of actions or behaviors that would be considered obstructing justice? Sure. So it can be, you know, attempting to get an investigation to narrow its scope. It can be attempting to interfere with um, witness testimony. It can be attempting to interfere with evidence that uh, the investigation may be trying to uncover. Really anything that can prevent the investigators, prevent the proceeding from going along in the normal course, the way it would absent that kind of obstruction. A lot seems to turn on this notion of improper purpose or the phrase I, I often hear and I heard you just use, corruptly influence. What are the kinds of things that prosecutors would look at to determine whether someone has corruptly influenced an investigation or has acted with improper cause? I mean, in other words, how do you prove or establish intent? Yeah, and that's a tricky question um, across the span of criminal offenses. How do you prove what was going on in someone's mind? And, you know, sometimes there might be direct evidence. You might have the smoking gun where the person says, I'm trying to prevent the court from figuring out what really happened here. But courts can also look at circumstantial evidence um, to understand what was motivating the person. And so the question at the end of the day is, you know, in the context of a criminal prosecution, can the prosecutor prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person was acting with an improper purpose? They were trying to prevent this investigation from going forward in the way that it should have um, with an um, improper reason in mind. And the obstruction statute does not require that justice was actually obstructed, right? Only that the person endeavored to impede justice. Because given some of the arguments that we're hearing from some of the president's defenders, this seems like a very important point to clarify. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's true for the criminal code and it's true for impeachment as well. There's certainly no requirement that the person who was trying to obstruct justice had to be successful. You know, the point is that they were trying to interfere with an investigation. They were trying to interfere with a court proceeding. And whether they were successful or not, you know, in the context of President Trump, there's a lot of indications that he tried to obstruct and his subordinates didn't listen to him and didn't follow his commands. But in the, the day, that doesn't matter. The American people don't have to rely on the hope that the president's subordinates won't listen to his direction. This is why attempted murder or attempted robbery are crimes, even if they're botched. Exactly. Well, what is the difference between obstruction of justice as a criminal charge and obstruction of justice as an impeachable, quote, high crime and misdemeanor? Is there a different standard for each of these things? How should listeners think about the distinction? Yeah, they're definitely different. And it's important to remember that for obstruction of justice as an impeachable offense, you don't have to prove the elements that would make this a crime under federal law. And I think it's worth backing up to think about why the impeachment clause is in the Constitution in the first place. 
When the framers drafted our national charter, they were deeply, deeply concerned about corruption. They were deeply concerned that our nation's leaders might might be induced to put their personal interests above the national interest. And so there are lots of checks on corruption in the Constitution. And the impeachment clause is the ultimate check. It's the ultimate check on abusive public officials, and in particular, the ultimate check on an abusive president. When the framers drafted the Constitution, their design for our new government sharply departed from what we'd had before in a few different respects, but particularly with respect to establishing a strong executive branch headed by a single president. They thought that was incredibly important to have, but they also recognized that with great power came the possibility of great abuses. And so they thought it was incredibly important that the people's representatives have the power to remove a president who was so abusing his the powers of his office that allowing him to remain in office would be a danger to the republic. So obstruction of justice is an impeachable offense on its face. On its face. I mean, it's something that we saw in the Nixon impeachment. It's something that we saw in the Clinton impeachment articles. And it's something that has regularly come up in this context because it's a prime example of the president using the powers of his office to benefit himself rather than the American people. You know, it's incredibly important that we have this check on obstruction of justice because it goes to the integrity of our justice system, both within the courts and within the political process. It goes to the integrity of our constitutional system. If there have been allegations of wrongdoing, if there have been allegations of abuses of the public trust, it's incredibly important that the American people be able to know the truth of what happened. And so if a president is willing to abuse the official powers of his office to prevent the American people from knowing that truth, from knowing what happened, that's deeply corrosive to our system of government. And that's why this is, again, something that we've seen come up in past impeachments and is certainly in play today. So right now, the president and many Republicans are asserting two things at the same time. So bear with me here. The the first is that any testimony from witnesses who heard secondhand or thirdhand about Trump's alleged extortion scheme against Ukraine, well, that's unreliable. In other words, these people weren't in the room, so we can't trust them. And the second assertion is that officials with firsthand knowledge of Trump's alleged extortion scheme are immune from congressional subpoenas because the president wants to claim executive privilege. So effectively, that makes reliable testimony on their terms impossible. The people with firsthand knowledge can't be trusted, and uh, or the people without firsthand knowledge, rather, can't be trusted. And the people with it, well, they can't testify. Is that obstruction of justice? Yeah. I mean, what we've been seeing repeatedly from this White House are really unprecedented attempts to interfere with congressional oversight and now to interfere with the House's ongoing impeachment inquiry. And it's really quite stunning. What we're seeing are abuses of executive power and an attempt to obstruct the very process that the Constitution set up to check abuses of executive power. You know, under the president's view, you know, this is an illegitimate process, even though it is in the Constitution. It is something the framers believe deeply was critically important to act as a check on the presidency. And he's engaging in all manner of efforts to undermine the investigation, calling into question its legitimacy, trying to pressure witnesses not to cooperate, making clear that he will not participate. And, you know, that in itself is obstruction of justice. And that in and of itself is the kind of thing that we could see in impeachment articles voted out of the House. And how would congressional investigators determine if the people that the president coerced uh, into not testifying or alleged to have coerced into not testifying, if those witnesses deny that they were in fact coerced, if they insist that they themselves chose that course of action for whatever reason, 
Is there a threshold for proof there? How would how would that be uh, established one way or the other? You know, this is really a judgment for members of the House to make. You know, the Constitution doesn't set out in granular detail exactly how they should go about making this judgment. What it what it tells them is that it is appropriate to impeach and for the Senate to remove from office an official who's abusing the powers of his office and abusing them in such a way that it's dangerous for him to remain in office. And I think what we're going to see the House looking at is the entire course of conduct that we've seen from this president. Certainly, there's a focus now on Ukraine and what happened there. But I think we're also going to see consideration of the sorts of obstruction that prevent them from getting to the truth of that matter and the sorts of obstruction that were detailed in excruciating detail in special counsel Robert Mueller's report, where there's you know numerous examples of the president trying to interfere with the special counsel's investigation, trying to limit its scope, trying to um, you know ensure that witnesses don't present evidence that's um, damaging to him, and really trying to prevent the American people from learning the truth of what happened. Are there any other actions from President Trump or from his administration? And here I'm talking specifically about the Ukraine investigations. Are there any other actions that fall under the umbrella of obstruction of justice, as far as you can tell? I mean, I think it's something we're still learning because obviously we're in the middle of the impeachment inquiry and trying to understand what happened here. You know, certainly what we're seeing from this president, it seems, is an effort to prevent the House from getting to the truth of what happened in Ukraine. Obviously, the Ukraine allegations themselves are deeply, deeply disturbing. You know, they're also the quintessential example of what the framers were so nervous about, you know, a president trying to abuse the powers of his office to keep himself in office. And... I think what we're going to see in this investigation is hopefully learning more about that, although there's so much that we already know, and also learning more about the president's efforts to prevent the House from getting to the truth. Are there any useful historical legal analogs to the case we're facing today, whether that's in an American context or any other, some other, some example that can throw a little light on on what we're dealing with right now that's useful in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, instructive to look back at both the Nixon impeachment story and the Clinton one. And in both of those examples, we saw obstruction of justice in the draft articles of impeachment. You know, what I think the House Judiciary Committee emphasized when it was considering Nixon's impeachment um, was how important addressing obstruction of justice was to maintaining our constitutional government, to making sure that Congress can engage in investigations and investigate allegations of serious abuses of the public trust. And it's really striking when you look back at the Nixon example in particular, how many analogs you see to what happened here. You know, the uh, president's former White House counsel, Don McGahn, even likened um, what the president was asking him to do when he started asking him to fire the special counsel to the infamous Watergate Saturday night massacre, um, where the President Nixon tried to have the independent prosecutor um, who was investigating Watergate fired. And we see similar similarities as well in, um, you know, President Trump's efforts to get individuals to lie to the American people to prevent them from understanding what happened here. Well, there's another admittedly strange question that really could not have been asked until this moment in history. And this may be a little bit out of your domain, so feel free to punt if you like. But I'll ask anyway. The president, as everyone knows, uses the media, you know, Twitter, Fox News, whatever, as a weapon in many ways to control the news cycle, to drive coverage, to shape the narrative, to frame the terms of, of the political conversation. If the president and his people are intentionally flooding the public space with misinformation, with lies intended to subvert an impeachment inquiry by essentially poisoning public opinion, 
Is that a form of obstruction, albeit a very bizarre and 21st century form of obstruction? Definitely a very 21st century form of obstruction. You know, I think it's something that definitely has to be considered in conjunction with all of the other indicia of obstruction of justice that we know about and are learning about. You know, certainly the president has been engaging in tweets in an effort to um, intimidate witnesses, to try to encourage them to not give testimony that would be unfavorable to him. At the same time, there are indications that he has been willing to use the official powers of the office, like dangling the pardon power in an effort to encourage witnesses to, again, not give testimony that's unfavorable to him. So I think in considering whether the president has engaged in obstruction of justice, and again, there's abundant evidence that he has, um, it's important to consider the entire course of conduct, both the use of official powers and uh, the the bully pulpit of the presidency, if you will. Well, the, the official powers of the president is a huge complicating factor here. And there are a lot of arguments being thrown around that make the case that the president, by definition, cannot be charged with obstruction of justice, right? The the president is the head of law enforcement. He or she has the authority to hire or fire subordinates. He or she has the authority to tell those subordinates to pursue or to not pursue investigations. And as you know, the president's former lawyer, uh, John Dowd, said, quote, the president cannot obstruct justice precisely because he's the chief law enforcement officer in the country, which is effectively saying the president is above the law. Do you buy that in any way? No, absolutely not. I think that gets it fundamentally wrong. I mean, the founders included impeachment as a check on the presidency precisely because they recognized how many powers the president had, and they recognized that those powers could be subject to abuse. There are, you know, any number of powers that the president has that are lawful, but if you use them for improper purposes, if you use them to try to impede an investigation, to try to prevent the American people from learning the truth, that can itself be impeachable. And it doesn't matter whether it's a power that the president could use for a lawful purpose. You know, again, I think it's important to remember how deeply concerned the framers were that the president might abuse the official powers of his office to benefit himself rather than the nation. In arguing for impeachment, George Mason, one of the founders, um, asked, shall any man be above justice? And above all, shall any man be above justice who's most capable of committing injustice? Something to that effect. And the point was the president, because of the significant powers he holds, could use those powers to engage in real abuses. And there needs to be a check on that. In other words, just because the president has the power to do something does not necessarily mean it's lawful for him to do so. That's right. So the president has the power to pardon individuals. No one would contest that. But if the president tries to use the pardon power to encourage a witness to give dishonest testimony, that can be an abuse of office and that can be an impeachable offense. Another argument I'm hearing, and you alluded to it a few minutes ago, is that Trump was not obstructing justice, but instead he was refusing to cooperate with an illegitimate partisan witch hunt. Right? Is there any validity to that claim? I mean... How can we discern what is or isn't a legitimate proceeding? Is that even a relevant question? I mean, the House has the power of impeachment, and this is clearly a valid, permissible exercise of this incredibly important constitutional authority that the Congress was given in order to serve as a check on the executive branch. It's you know, also important to remember that there is, even before the start of this impeachment inquiry, abundant evidence of the president's abuses of office. You only have to look at special counsel Mueller's report to, again, see numerous examples of the president um, attempting to obstruct justice. And it's worth remembering that 
that, you know, although the special counsel declined to make, you know, what he called a traditional prosecutorial judgment because there's Department of Justice guidance that says a president can't be indicted while he's in office, the special counsel referred to the constitutional processes for checking the president, namely impeachment. And he also made clear that, you know, if after their thorough investigation of the facts, they had been able to conclude that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, they would have said that. And they made clear that based on their review of the law and the facts, that was something they could not say. Let's say there is strong evidence that the president obstructed justice. There is still the political case that, for the sake of public perception and opinion, that perhaps the Democrats should keep the impeachment inquiry as narrow as possible, which may not include obstruction. Are you persuaded by that logic? I mean, in other words, is there a risk of blowback by incorporating this into the impeachment inquiry? Or do you think it's essential that they do so in any case? You know, it's obviously, at the end of the day, a judgment call for members of the House to make. But I think there is incredibly strong evidence here of obstruction of justice. And I think what's important to remember are a couple of things. One, this goes to the heart of why we have the impeachment power, to be able to check an abusive president, to be able to ensure that he doesn't use the powers of his office to benefit himself personally and to undermine our constitutional system of government. And it's also important to remember that these efforts to obstruct justice really do tie in very tightly to the underlying substantive abuses that the House is now focusing on with respect to Ukraine. We don't know all of the facts. We don't have testimony from all of the witnesses who might be able to speak to details um, regarding the withholding of foreign aid, for example, um, precisely because the president is trying to obstruct this inquiry. If Trump is not held accountable for obstructing justice, what sort of precedent will that set for future administrations? Well, Congressional oversight, congressional impeachment inquiries are a fundamental component of our nation's system of checks and balances. And so if the president is allowed to engage in this kind of obstruction of justice without being called to account for it, and that can come in various ways, um, that would be deeply disturbing. But I think one thing that is positive is that we are seeing increasing attention on the president's abuses of power, and I think increasing recognition um, that it is not acceptable and it's at odds with the way our constitutional system is supposed to work. The Democrats have said that the impeachment inquiry is, above all, an exercise in public education. And so the point is to um, inform the American people what has happened and why it matters. But if you're a Republican or if you're a Republican lawmaker and you like Trump and you like the job he's doing, why should you be concerned that he has perhaps obstructed justice once or twice or five times? Why is this a problem worth worrying about if you're a Republican, especially if you're a Republican. Because the kind of abuses that the president has engaged in are deeply, deeply disturbing because they're corrosive to our system of government. And I would imagine that Republicans, if the party labels were turned around, would be deeply, deeply disturbed by the idea of a Democratic president trying to encourage foreign interference in our elections, trying to encourage or prevent an investigation designed to uncover the truth of that. Our constitutional system depends on checks and balances. It depends on the precept that no one, including the president, is above the law. And that's something that everyone across both sides of the aisle should be able to agree on. 
And that's, again, why I think it's so incredibly important that there be real attention to obstruction of justice, to the types of abuses that the president has been engaging in, and how important it is that those sorts of abuses not be allowed under our constitutional system of government. Brianne Garad, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to hold on this idea of obstruction of justice. The Trump administration's refusal to release key documents or allow witnesses to testify before the Intelligence Committee, that seems like a clear example of legal obstruction of justice, whether or not it finds its way into an article of impeachment. But as these hearings have unfolded, I've realized there's been another form of obstruction going on from day one. The active attempt by Republican politicians and media operatives not to respond to this investigation, but to try and actively delegitimize it. They claim that all the testimony so far is hearsay because there are no firsthand witnesses to President Trump's alleged crimes. They claim that we don't know whether the military aid in question was conditional on investigations into Burisma because we have no documented evidence besides, of course, the transcript that the White House released that is itself damning, even if it is incomplete. And then they use these claims as a jumping off point to say that the investigation is a witch hunt and a sham and capable of producing anything substantive. And these two forms of obstruction, the president's legal obstruction and the Republicans' political obstruction, are inextricably linked. Republican politicians are only able to delegitimize the ongoing investigation with claims of hearsay and insufficient evidence exactly because the Trump administration is actively preventing the Intelligence Committee from doing its job. What we are seeing here is a vicious circle of executive power being wielded to lend credence to misinformation in a broader attempt not only to prevent the investigation from being carried out, but to delegitimize it in the eyes of the American people. Over the past few years, you've probably heard the word collusion quite a bit when it comes to this administration. The collusion we often talk about is that between a corrupt administration or elected official and a foreign government. And that type of collusion is dangerous and destabilizing and wrong. But the Founding Fathers foresaw that type of collusion, and they built a system of checks and balances to beat it back. There is another type of collusion that the Founders did not predict, however. Collusion between the president and the members of his party in Congress to undermine any attempt to hold that president accountable. That is the collusion we are facing today, and if it continues, then it sets a very dangerous precedent. Because what's happening now is that obstruction of justice is being normalized. It is being wielded as a partisan tool that the president can use to undermine any attempt at public accountability. If these actions go unpunished and unacknowledged, then the very actions that brought down Richard Nixon will be considered par for the course. And that's not a precedent any of us, Republican or Democrat, should want to live with. I'm Sean Illing, and this is Impeachment Explained. That's our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. Ezra will be back next week with another awesome episode, so make sure to keep tuning in. If you are enjoying the show, please leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. It really does help out. And if you have any other impeachment questions you want explained, you can send them in an email to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com, or you can tweet us using the hashtag 
Impeachment Explained. Impeachment Explained is engineered, produced, and edited by Jeff Geld. It is researched by Roger Karma. Our theme music is composed by John Natchez, and I am your guest host, Sean Illing. Impeachment Explained is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>